I do think that sometimes there's little dreams that get planted in our heart that don't totally make sense, but it's there for a reason. And sometimes you just have to follow that thread and see where it takes you. And sometimes it's just kind of showing up and trusting your own process in it. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey everyone, today on the Living Center Podcast, we're excited to introduce you to our friend, author, podcaster, and CEO, Allison Trowbridge. During this conversation with Miles and Lindsay, Allison shares her wild and unexpected journey to founding Copper, a disruptive social platform that connects book enthusiasts and readers directly with authors. She shares how the different seasons of her life, the good, the hard, and all the in-between, brought her to this brand new scary venture. Join us for a conversation about embracing our dreams, combating burnout, and leaning into emotional wellness every step of the way. You can learn more about Allison, her work with Copper, and even register to get early access to this revolutionary platform in today's show notes. Now, join me in welcoming our friend, Allison. Guys, I'm so excited to be here today with our friend, Allie. We have known each other for a long time, and it's so fun to always reconnect with you in different seasons and see all the amazing things you're doing. So just kind of catching the audience up, will you talk about your personal and professional journey and sort of where you are and how you got there? Gosh, yeah. So hi, guys. It's so good to be with you. I miss you both. I miss friendship and I miss so much in this year. I am in the midst of building a tech startup, which has been a wild roller coaster ride in and of itself during 2020 started building a company because I was an author. I published a book while I was in business school in the UK a couple years ago. And in that process was just realized like every author I know is really frustrated by the publishing experience right now. And I was too and realized so much of that was just that there was no real like platforms created to serve authors and and our needs. And so that kind of started me out on this winding journey of how can I how can I build a better a better platform to serve these big needs that I was seeing. So created a company called Copper. We've been building this tech platform. I never thought I would be in a tech startup, you guys. It's it's crazy how just winding roads change your life. I came out of anti-trafficking and human rights and then was an author. So obviously the natural next step, right? As you go and like (laughs) go into tech. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on. Yeah. That's amazing. And so you sort of mentioned that you'd worked in the anti-trafficking space. I I think that was when I first met you, you were just such this fireball 20 something that was sort of like changing the world and really following your passion. What ignited that passion for you in anti-trafficking? Obviously, it's something that we should all care about and be knowledgeable about. But was there something personal that sort of pulled you into that space? Yeah, it was actually super personal. I had a family member who had been a victim of sexual assault several times. And I think just growing up, I always felt this 
just that sense of, I think when we're like overwhelmed by these difficult issues, you feel powerless and you feel like, you know, there was nothing I could have done, but how could I, I saw trafficking and sex trafficking as kind of the most extreme of that situation. And so it was just this like drive to want to do something and to participate in some way in helping prevent that and support survivors in a way that I couldn't have done for this family member of mine. And so it was never a a big career vision in any way. It was being in college, looking for ways that I could do something and, and help and support. And I, I have so many young people kind of coming out of college or in their early 20s, like, and we all want to change the world and we all want to do something super meaningful and impactful. And it just feels absolutely overwhelming. And I think starting small and just showing up. And I mean, I was volunteering for a long time before I was ever working in an organization. And just when they, you know, this brand new organization was starting and they turned around and they're like, well, here's this girl we can't get rid of who keeps running around doing everything. And so it kind of naturally rolled into into a job, but it was very much a, a just a showing up and participating, packing boxes kind of thing. Hmm. What would you say in in your time in the trafficking space was the most hopeful and the most heartbreaking takeaway? Mm. I think the most hopeful was that when I started working in that space, that was probably around 2007, 2008. I mean, I remember this one time where I got into a, a fight with U.S. congressmen that didn't believe me that slavery and trafficking existed. And there was a point a a few years in where I started to actually think I was going crazy because it was like, you know, here you have this, this massive criminal industry and this huge social, social justice issue. And people just didn't see it and they didn't believe that it existed. And I think it's really easy to get discouraged when you're in a space like that. But the the benefit of being a part of something for a long time, and I still stay involved in the anti-trafficking space where I can today. And I think seeing it over so many years, I've been so encouraged because it's a night and day different environment around the issue. I mean, just to see, you know, the laws that have been changed and how many people have gotten involved in working on this topic and and books written and and news stories done. And it's like just seeing the mass awareness has then kind of resulted in all of this work and impact being done. And so that's the thing that's just encouraged me the most is I actually feel like we're watching the needle move on this issue, even though it feels intractable and it feels such so thorny and 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 hard. It's it's just a night and day different space than it than it was a decade ago. And and I think the most heartbreaking was just, you know, sitting with survivors and and when you hear stories of what people have actually been through. <clears throat> and I was, you know, fortunate to get to sit in Cambodia with little girls who had been through th- these horrific abuses. And same thing, though, when you sit with survivors and realize the resilience of the human spirit, it's it just shifts your perspective on life. It really it really, really does. And I just keep using this word of like participant. I feel like 
I feel like on social issues, it's like we get to be participants in a work that's already happening. It's not on our shoulders. It's not for us to go change the world. It's for us to participate in a movement and a work that's happening. Hmm. Well said. The uh, I think in uh, working with uh, friends, we have a lot of mutual friends that that work in the NGO space, uh, trying to support um, just you know tragedies globally uh, in trafficking and in other areas. And uh, you know, I usually hear one or two things after people uh, spend a long career in that is they it it, it definitely is a rewarding path uh, mm. to see some of the miracles that take place to experience some of the progress and there's no um, denying that it does come at a cost and mm-hmm. the the heartbreak usually can be in two specific lanes one is the heartbreak of seeing the reality of what's actually happening to trauma survivors out there and then the other part is often the heaviness that comes with our own spirit from downloading and experiencing so much of that in real time. How did, you know, uh, I've been excited to have you on this podcast because it's just about, you know, living centered and trying to get uh, connected into the core of who, who we are and having come out of that for 10 years. Uh, and, and now it sounds like putting that Oxford MBA, which is pretty amazing how many people get an MBA from Oxford, but an Oxford MBA to work uh, in starting your own company. But how did you take care of your heart during that time? Mm. Yeah, you know, what you said is exactly right about the two ways it can impact you. And I think that there early on, I, you know, I, I felt like I really felt like it was all on my shoulders. And if I kind of dropped the ball in any way or missed an opportunity to like raise money from a donor, I remember this one time where I missed a flight and was in the airport for like 20 hours trying to catch a flight during spring break and thinking I was going to miss this opportunity to pitch. And it was just devastating because it was like, you know, this funding is not going to happen on the ground and it's all my fault. And Um, And it it was just debilitating the way that I approached my work on the issue early on, because I think I was so early in my career, I didn't have the the tools or the equipment to really know how to process these heavy things as someone who was like 22, 23 at the time. And I remember early in that time having, we had gone to Capitol Hill and we're doing this big advocacy day. And my best friend came as kind of one of the participants and At one point, I just had this breakdown in the hotel room. And like, I just, I will never forget the cheap polyester, like mattress cover and like sobbing on it and her just sitting with me and holding space for Mm. me to kind of unearth everything that I had been carrying around this. And and that was kind of a, a breaking point, turning point for realizing, you know, my, my kind of emotional posture towards this issue isn't, is not healthy and it's not serving me and it's not serving the cause. And that's where I I started going through that shift of from like savior mentality to participant mentality of it's, it's not on my shoulders to save the world. It's, I am not the sole person that's going to change this issue, but how do I show up to something that's, that's, happening and do it in a way where I, I think for me, my community was a huge part in keeping me grounded and centered and 
and kind of whole through that time where it, it was also an identity thing of I had to to start to kind of unwind and unpack my identity from I am not my I'm not this issue. I'm not what I do. I am not. I had to kind of establish a new identity around who I am separate from the work I was doing. And that's kind of been a theme that's even carried forward to to jump through a couple years. When I was finishing my MBA, I published a book that year and was just hitting a level of burnout that I have I've never experienced that that depth of burnout. And I was sitting with a mentor during that time who was someone I really respected. And, you know, I, I'm sitting with him and I'm like, here's my book and it just came out and I, and I got to figure out what I'm going to do next career wise. And it was like 8am and I hadn't had any coffee yet. And he just stops, stops me and says, Allie, chill the F out, take a break. I, I just need you to stop. I just need you to turn the engine off for a second. And I'm like, I couldn't even compute or process what it meant to to just stop or to slow down. And he goes, does he's like, just take off, go hang out at a you know cafes in Europe somewhere. Just just stop for a minute. Stop working. Stop hustling. Just allow yourself to rest and not know what's happening next. And I mean, basically, he was telling me to take a sabbatical. And it was. He goes, does that sound harder? than writing a book and getting your MBA from Oxford. And I'm like twitching. I'm like, yes. Because that's, <laughs> he's like, that's why you've got to do it. I think that's the point when you know that you're like far past the burnout point is when sitting still feels harder than all of the hustling that you've been doing. And I just, I'm so grateful for that and for that time because I mean, it was not a glamorous couple months. I, you know, I was totally broke. I had no idea what I was doing with my life. I, you know, just, and just had to learn how to sit in that. And I, I came to this point where I just realized, I was like, you know what? If I never accomplish or achieve anything again in my life, and it's just, you know, me and my community and learning, and I just am who I am, I am totally content in that. I'm actually just okay as me and not what I'm doing and contributing. And I say all that because it, I think it's going through that time of really disconnecting my identity from what I do, set me up to be in a healthy place, to build a company and do it in a way where my identity is not the company. If it was gone tomorrow, I would be totally I'd be devastated, but I would be fine as far as like who my identity is. So that's kind of been a theme of work over the last, you know, 10, 12 years. Gosh, so much of what you just said resonates with me. The pressure of the responsibility and the uh, sort of constant learning of how to carry it differently. Mm -hmm. It's like not that I want to avoid responsibility, but I've got to learn how to not carry it like the weight of the world's on my shoulders. Yeah. And I have been through one of those untangling seasons too. And Mm. and sort of sitting in an in-between where I didn't have the answers that people... I wanted to be able to give people about what I was going to do next. And it really is disarming. But for me, and it sounds like for you too, like what came on the other side of it was this like richness and trust that people like me for the right things. And I liked me for the right <laughs> yes. things. Yeah, totally. Totally. I had people. So I did this little post during that season of 
I did a little Instagram post with that emoji where they're like shrugging their shoulders, like, I don't know. And so I just posted that image and, and wrote this message about, I actually am intentionally creating space to not know what I'm doing next and to not have life figured out and not have a plan. I had people I'd never met stopping me in the halls at school and saying, thank you for giving me permission not to know because you've got like 350 type A personalities that are all hustling. And to be kind of countercultural to that, it was so, it was really freeing. It was really hard, but it was really freeing. Yeah, I totally get that. I've just always been so curious about all your transitions. So when you left the nonprofit space, like how did you kind of know what to pursue next? Yeah. Um, and like, how have you kind of managed through sort of, the decision to go to Oxford and then writing a book and then starting your company? Great question. Um, so the reason I actually went to business school was because in my early years in the nonprofit space, I learned the stat that most nonprofits fail in the first three years because they're driven just by heart and mission and service, but they don't actually realize that an NGO is its own kind of business and you have to manage the money and you have to know operations. And so I realized that that was a huge kind of gap in, you know, if if I want to be of service in the world, getting an MBA and, and growing myself and kind of the business side of things would actually be kind of one of the higher contribution elements to that. And so that's kind of what planted the the dream. And then, and I had gotten to be a part of an impact investment fund where I was like, you know, sitting at these tables, I had no business sitting at, but I, I felt like I was kind of lacking some of the language of business and investments and like making it up as I went. And, and I, I just wanted to kind of take a pause to actually learn and really develop kind of a grounding and a language around that. And then I had this kind of turning point when I was publishing the book where I, I don't know why I was, I was sitting in my apartment in New York thinking like, what are my biggest life regrets? And I don't know why I was sitting there thinking this, but my biggest regret was that I had never followed this dream to go to business school. And I just couldn't shake it. And I do think that sometimes there's little dreams that get planted in our heart that don't totally make sense, but it's there for a reason. And sometimes you just have to, you just have to follow that thread and see where it takes you. So I applied on a whim. I ordered a, whatever it was, the GRE book off of Amazon and like two weeks later took the test and threw in a couple applications and Oxford was the one I got into. They have like a social wow. impact kind of focus to it. I really, I was not very prepared, but also just to use a word you guys use, you know, trusting the process, like trusting that journey and trusting that like inner knowing that there was something here for me. And I just, I love like winding career journeys because when you look back you see how all of these threads tie together like my love for books and publishing came from seeing books lay the groundwork for the anti-trafficking movement i saw books ignite social movements and bring people together and connect people and bring meaning and community and then being in the uk while i was there they appointed a minister of loneliness and you know, the U.S. was the Surgeon General was coming out saying loneliness is the new public health crisis. And I realized current social platforms aren't 
developing real meaning and community in our lives? And how could books and maybe a platform around books help bring people together and develop that community? So it's like all of these threads tie together and make sense. And sometimes it's just kind of showing up and trusting your own process in it. Hey friends, I'm interrupting this conversation to talk to the dreamers. I love how Allie shared about her dream to go to business school and how one day she just stopped letting it go unexplored. It makes me wonder what things in my own life have gone unexplored and may need a little rediscovery. If you've been around the podcast for a while, you might know that here at Onsite, we believe you already have everything you need inside of you to live the life of your dreams, one of connection, purpose, and vision. You just need to rediscover it. That's one of the reasons we created our online course, Rediscovering You, to help you find and reclaim all those beautiful parts of yourself, including the dreams that may have been pushed aside. This six-week course journeys through your past, present, and future circumstances to assess where you are, gain a deeper understanding of the beliefs and behaviors that inform your worldview, and ultimately help you start to build the life that you want to live. Our digital courses are grounded in the same proven techniques and frameworks as all of our in-person workshops, but from the comfort of your own couch at a pace that fits your lifestyle. You are worth the exploration. Maybe this is the nudge that you need to get curious and start dreaming again. As a special bonus for being a podcast listener, we're offering you 20% off this six-week course when you use the code podcast at checkout. Get all the details at onsiteworkshops.com slash rediscovering you. I wanted to circle back and ask you one more question about that sabbatical. Your mentor said you need to turn the engine off. And I do think there's so much value in, and I think there's almost like an intensity detox, detoxing off of intensity and hustle. And detox in the physical form is obviously ridding your body of, of toxins that um, aren't supporting your overall health. Well, there's also an emotional detox, I think, that rids your mind of yes. toxic uh, thoughts and patterns. And tell me what what you how you feel or what you think about an effective sabbatical if we want to use that word or rest or recharge or taking a break and how's that been supportive to you i know you kind of mentioned that earlier but um how how do you see those working in today's framework where everything moves so fast and and you as an entrepreneur knowing you're going to be bringing all these new people into your company how might you encourage that or would you encourage that i think I, and I could be wrong, but I think, you know, the idea of a sabbatical comes from just Sabbath and the Jewish tradition of, of Sabbath. And I have a number of friends that are Orthodox Jewish and seeing the intentionality with which they take the Sabbath and, and it's a practice it's a, it's a ritual it's looked forward to it's, it's joyful, it's prepared for. I've gotten a lot of learning even just in recent years watching that practice. And something that I practice now in my own life is every week having a time of Sabbath. So I have a propensity to work very late nights and very long days. And and in this season, I think that's okay. But Friday night to Sunday morning, I really... I really rest and and turn the engine off. And part of it is just not letting my brain think about work because I've realized when when I stop the engine, so to speak, for for a day, day and a half, I come back with so much more energy and so refreshed. 
And then when it comes to taking an actual sabbatical, I think when you know that you need one is when a weekend doesn't refresh you anymore. And Mm, when I was in grad school and the book was coming out, which that's so dumb. Like don't publish a book while you're doing like a one year MBA. Like it was, I was like sending in edits at 7am and then 9am running to take an exam. And I mean, it was just too, it was just too much. And, and it was so, it was such a, the book was such an emotional, vulnerable, every level, it just challenged me. And so it was this point where on the heels of that, I was trying to like take a weekend and stop for two days. And I had, I, I felt no refreshment from it. And so that's the point in which you need to, to actually do, I think a larger reset. And I think the more intention and purposefulness that you come at that with, the more that you will take from that time and season. And that's not in a productivity way, but more in a more in a, a creating space kind of way. And and I love that people are are doing onsite and coming to onsite as part of that sabbatical because I I probably couldn't recommend something more. I mean you're you're really people are literally handing in their phones and then taking intentional time and space to really to to go inward and to to unpack, you know, so many of these just, you know, practices, habits, traumas that are holding them back in some way. And I just think the more that we we can create rhythms to do that in our own lives where, you know, once a week taking a day where you stop and every number of years taking a some sort of sabbatical where you where you stop. I, I think it's essential. I think it's, you know, I, I, I think our culture is kind of in the put the gas pedal down regardless. And just my own experience of hitting burnout a couple of times. It's you asked about my team and and I think you know, one is just like, even just around holidays, just taking, there's this pressure to always produce and to just set a block of time and say, no one's working, nothing's expected. Like, just take the time to just stop as a team. And I've shared with you, Miles, one of my dreams as a as a CEO is to someday get the company to a place where we can send every team member to onsite. Because I just think that, when we take the time and space to heal those inner wounds and do that inner work, we show up for our calling and our mission in a healthier, more effective, more productive way. And that's kind of the irony to it. The leaders that I think are making the longest lasting impact, those that are, that are the ones I'm following really today are those that are leading with a sense of emotional intelligence, where they are connected between here and here, head and their heart. Where you, you mentioned early on in the interview about an emotional posture, which I love that fra- that phrasing. I don't know that I've heard it said like that before, but um, what is it, you know, it could be pers- you know, it personally that uh, helps you access the full range of your emotion? Do you find it easy to access emotion? Did that get modeled to you well? Is it something you've had to grow into? Hmm. You know, I think we're, we're in an interesting time in business where it's, you know, for so long, everything was about IQ. And I think we're in an era now where EQ is what actually matters more than almost anything, especially if you're going to 
if you're going to lead, I, I'll i just give a quick anecdote from my time in, in business school. One of my favorite classes was actually called Leading Through the Humanities, where they would take different kind of humanities courses from Oxford and teach leadership through it. And there was one day where the professor had a choir come in and and brought them down to the front of the room and you know you're hearing that's like the oxford choir and they're perfect and it's beautiful and they're singing latin and then he called a student forward and handed them handed the choir a sheet of music in italian that they didn't know and then handed a conducting wand what do you call it a conductor i'll call it a wand because it looks like a wand but um handed that to the student and said conduct them lead them and the student has no idea what the music is. So they're just like, you know, going, you know, dancing around with the wand and, and the choir's like singing up and down and, and all over. But as the more they did it, the more they almost established this kind of rapport with the choir. And the whole purpose of the exercise was to realize as a leader, you are not the expert. You are not going to be the best at what your team needs to do. And I think about this every day because I'm starting to to lead and hire programmers and engineers and people who are so much smarter than I am and and have this level of expertise that I have no idea how to do their job. And so I feel like a conductor that doesn't know the music sometimes. But I think when we invest into the emotional intelligence and our EQ and and the leading from a human level, it allows us to kind of go to the next level professionally and us to lead our team in a way where they feel they feel connected and heard and seen and known. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about whether it's in leading my team or even just in, in raising money and like the emotional intelligence of understanding what an investor is looking for and what a partnership with them would look like. It, it's so much of that is is actually playing in the EQ field more than the IQ field. And so it's something where I think it's a it's a superpower that that we invest space and and energy and time into to make our organizations and companies and work better. Is there a moment that you remember where you sort of used that visual of the conductor and it sort of shaped sort of how you led through and sort of what you watched the team reflect back to you? Yeah, I I think probably the very in March was when we first started building the actual product and it was just so intimidating because I I I just don't know I you know I don't know how to write the code that our company is built off of and a lot of founders in tech companies are coders themselves and and so instead learning how to kind of mirror back the work that my team is doing and being able to let them be the experts and, but still be guiding and directing them. And I just, yeah, that, that was when that visuals really came into sharp focus for me because I felt like they're singing music that I don't know how to even, I don't even know how to read the sheet music, but they're all looking to me for direction. And so this is the opportunity for me to kind of step into that conductor role and, and to trust my team and to kind of create that interplay between them. Mm. I was thinking earlier when you were talking about the loneliness epidemic and that being some of the genesis for wanting to create copper, 
that there is so many people that are desperate for community and really suffering alone, especially in light of the pandemic that we've all been experiencing. How has loneliness played into your own life and how have you been intentional about creating community personally? Mm. And then how is that informing what you're doing with Copper? Yeah, yeah. So as far as personal life, I think for me, it's been really important to to build relationships and friendships that both understand what I like friendships that understand the work I'm doing and can step in and to feel that sense of, you know, you too, and and you understand what these unique challenges I'm going through, and to also have friendships and community that have no idea what I'm doing on the work front and don't have any any connection there and can take me completely outside of the workspace and to just be to to develop friendships that are have that depth and connection just for the friendship's sake. And so actually having both has been really key and really important in my life and doing a lot of um, like I made a decision to live with roommates in LA, which has been one of the best things that I've done because it's, you know, I have people around me to do day to day life with, which is just, it's not a small thing. And it would have been easier to just get a studio and live alone. And, um, and for me having just constant community around or people that I've been able to establish rhythms with, like who ask really deep and challenging questions. That's been another one. I I feel like I have the tendency to kind of be the question asker in friendships. And so really investing in the people that I feel like can, can ask me those who can call things out and, and hold me to, to things and, and challenge me in ways so that's been a lot of it of it personally and as far as the the company goes i've just i feel like one of the you know the greatest parts of life is developing relationships and friendships where you learn how to love and be loved unconditionally and and have people that you can do life with and so part of the thinking on building copper was the way that books can kind of i always say i'm allergic to small talk i feel like i'm kind of awkward in in small talk and so anything that helps kind of cut through that and create like if we both have read the same book that's eight hours of shared experience and helping people connect at a deeper level where they instantly are going to a place of meaning and vulnerability and openness and and leading with vulnerability in the conversation. That's where I think we start to form real meaningful relationships and start to feel known and be able to show up for for other people. And so using books as kind of a as a vehicle to to do that. Yeah, I was um I got to experience one of the book clubs on Copper oh, we yes. did with you. Yes, we did our a, anti-racism uh, white one. Yes. group. And it was just so impactful gathering with people from around the country that were like-minded and like-hearted and just to be able to have a really rich discussion. Yeah. But it was cool to see how it fostered a deeper level of connection with people that I've known and respected for a long time. So Yeah, that was that was really special. And and I think it's sometimes we need a reason to gather. We need kind of when we live these very productive lives, sometimes we need that kind of that purpose that brings us together around something. I, I have a friend who calls it um, like almost think of it like a digital campfire of like, what's the campfire that's bringing the community together. And then that's where like the connection happens. We got to do that again, Lindsay. That was I know, so special. I definitely do. 
I loved it. It was like a really good excuse to be with people and then to also like read the book that had been sitting on my nightstand forever. Great accountability. Totally. You mentioned Allie that, um, which I liked it. You've got some roommates that one of the things you value in them and friends that you have in your circle now are people who would ask uh, deep and challenging questions. What would be the, the deepest and most challenging question someone could ask you? Ooh, gosh, that's a tough one. I think the deepest and most challenging question would probably be centered around my why and, and getting really, really pressing into the why I'm doing what I'm building. I, I think sometimes when, when we, you know, are high achievers and, and focus on producing, I think we, we need someone to, to help us get to the end of our so that. Uh, so, uh, for, for example, sometimes we think we want a thing, but there's something beyond it that's what we're truly wanting. And how do we create and establish that now? So maybe you think you want, you know, this financial success or you want this accomplishment or this achievement or this number in a bank account or whatever the thing is that you're going after, but you don't really want that thing. You want the sense of being able to take care of your family or you want a sense of peace and stability in your life or you want rich and deep relationships that or you want to feel seen and known and so i think for somebody to to push me past the external thing that i think i'm achieving into the deeper why that's at the heart of why i think i want that thing and then helping me keep that as my North Star, because oftentimes that deeper why is something that we can actually cultivate in the moment. And if we're not learning how to cultivate that in our current lives, we're going to find kind of a wasteland when we achieve the thing that we want to achieve. Mm, that's good. I think I was trying to think about that for myself when I asked it. The uh, And I, it would probably, like for all of us, it probably shifts and changes based on what's happening currently. But I think if someone were to ask me, uh, what do you, what kind of value do you place on friendships? How do you pour into and create those? And what evidence to, evidence do you have to support that it's working for you? Mm. That'd be a challenging deep question for me to answer. And I probably just set myself up. I'm sure my next podcast interview, I'll get that. But, um, <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I was just thinking about what would be deep and a little more challenging to answer right now for me too. Yeah. And, uh, Lindsay, how about you? Yeah, I think mine probably is similar to Allie. It's, I think a lot of times I'm moving really fast after things that I think I want, but really helping kind of deconstruct, like, why do I want that? Or, do I really want that? Or is it sort of something that's culturally been handed to me? Mm. And so I think I spend a lot of time in my head trying to analyze that for myself, but inviting other people into that conversation can be harder for sure. Gosh, I appreciate the the time you've given uh, to us and our folks that listen to Living Center podcast, and I'm excited about what's coming with you and Copper, and but primarily you. I just think you're going to do continue to do great things, and um, we're excited to be friends with you and uh, watch it watch it all grow. Thanks, friend. Likewise, I'm so honored to know you guys. 
I, I've watched on-site change the lives of so many friends for years, long before we ever met Miles and Lindsay, before you worked there. And so it's, I just am so honored to, to be a part of your extended community. Mm. Grateful for you. And all yeah. the cool things you're doing in the world. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I guess uh, as a, a closing thought here, if you would, just what, you know, we, we didn't go too far back in your timeline, uh, but was there a pivotal age with you as a, as a, young, uh, a young girl, or it might have been as a young adult, that you would have a message for now that you would like her to know? Could be anything, any kind of wisdom, support, affirmation that you'd want her to know. What would that be? Hmm. When I was really little, when I was, gosh, just, I mean, four or five, I had this very, very deep sense of purpose. Like I was here on this world, on this earth to do something. And in and, and many ways, as you were asking the question, I was thinking I would actually like that little girl to encourage me. And sometimes I think back of like, how do I get back to to the even just the sense of mysticism I had as a little kid, just like that sense of wonder and kind of the belief that anything was possible. And, and, and I think I would, if I were to tell her something, it would be to keep living a great story and telling great stories. Mm. Yeah. That's good. Sometimes we, we kind of close this with a question, you know, a, a, a predictable question about, you know, uh, some things that would support you and others and living a more centered, you know, life. And I think you just nailed it. Uh, so that I appreciate what you affirmed yourself with, but I hope all of you listening that you'll take that as speaking directly into you too, because your story is, uh, has value and it deserves to be um, honored and shared. So thank you for that encouragement and wisdom. And we appreciate you giving us some time today. Ali, it was awesome. Thank you, friends. Thanks, Ali. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.